The following talk was given at the Insight Meditation Center in Redwood City, California. Please visit our website at audiodharma.org. Good evening. It seems to me that the volume can be just a tiny bit higher. I'm like having to strain my voice just a little bit. There we go. Thank you. Nice to be here with you all to practice together. So... I feel like I just want to keep on sitting. (laughs) So some of you know that um, when you go on retreat, especially on the long retreats, retreats that are like a month or longer, but also in the shorter retreats, that um, it's not uncommon for there to be like a bowl or something that uh, participants can write down a question and put it in the bowl, and then the teachers kind of go through and, you know, organize the questions and will answer some of them. Some of them they don't answer because they feel like, oh, that's not quite related to what we're talking about here. But they'll answer them just in the hall in general so everybody can hear the question and hear the answer. What's kind of interesting is that sometimes people participants are writing questions, these really, you know, complicated philosophical questions. Okay, maybe this is what they're thinking about. Maybe this is what their retreat is about. But as teachers, we tend to not want to answer them. Well, some teachers do, they want to. Because the point is to practice, not to think our way to... uh, some greater under, greater. I, I wanted to say greater understanding, but it's not that when we're on retreat, the emphasis is not on education. It's more on just being with our direct experience, with what's actually happening. Whether our mind is like all over the place or whether we're starting to feel settled or whether we're just going to really dislike that person that sits next to us because they're doing whatever it is that they're doing. You know, whatever our experience is, the practice is to be with it. And in the, some, in the same way, sometimes uh, many of you know that uh, Gil and I, we teach a sutta study class, and sometimes uh, people are saying, oh, wait, so if this is true, then wouldn't it feel like that? And I I don't want it to feel like that. For example, some of these insights like to impermanence, the suttas are filled with this. And then like a really deep insight, not just a thought, but um, like an experiential knowing that things change. I mean, we all know this on an intellectual level, but there's a way in which we can know it in a deeper experiential way. And then some people might say, well, if this is true that everything is inconstant, impermanent, then wouldn't it seem like uh, things are chaotic or 
uncomfortable or something like this. Or same with the, if there's no self, then how does that work? It, wouldn't that, that seems scary and I don't want to have a, not have a self. So these two different ideas are that one of these two examples that I'm giving are pointing to how sometimes we might think that practice is just about gaining the right knowledge, understanding things correctly. Where in fact, really, it's being pointed to our experience, to what's actually happening. But sometimes it's not so clear the difference. Certainly before when I, uh, before I started meditation practice, if you had said to me, well, it's not what you're thinking about, but it's what you're experiencing, I would have thought, yeah, okay, whatever. <laughs> but it's not until you have a meditation practice, I think, that you start to really understand the difference between direct experience and thinking about something. And in fact, I would say such a, big part of practice is making this distinction. Even though it may not be apparent or obvious, I would say this can be transformative if we can consistently, reliably make this difference. What are my ideas about something versus what is, what does it feel like? Is it a pressure? Is it a stabbing? Is it a tightness? Is it an openness? Is it uh, tingly? Is it um, seem like it's flowing, or does it feel like it's stuck? That's like I'm using really different language to describe kind of experience, right? Than some intellectual understanding. And so, maybe I'll also add here that often when we are upset or troubled. It's, we're not necessarily upset or troubled about the experience, about it being tingly and spacious or constricted, and maybe there's a stabbing sensation. It's tolerable, uncomfortable, but tolerable. Really, when we're uncomfortable, it's our thoughts that are about the experience. Oh, because I'm having that stabbing experience in my knee... It means that I won't be able to sit in a, on the floor anymore in a cross-legged position. I'll have to sit in the chair, and that's kind of a bummer. P- people will wonder what happened to me. I used to sit on the floor, and I have to sit in the chair, and I'll have to explain, and I don't know. Right? We make all these stories. So often the, the, um, the idea about something kind of like it's like a, a label that we kind of like slap onto our experience and then the label doesn't change it's just a label it's a word pain our experience might be all over the place changing and being uh, moving and morphing and going away and coming back but we're having a relationship with the label not with what's actually happening and this is where a lot of our difficulties in our life stem from. Of course we do this. I want to say we are socialized, educated to think about, you know, when to value our thoughts. And we have plenty of experience of the way that we think about things helps us to solve problems, helps us to plan, 
helps us to communicate so that we can put the plans into place. So we can see where there's this real value in thinking. But it's a radical shift to come to this practice and to say, even though I've been rewarded, you know, either with my uh, career or my education for what I'm thinking, to say, well, actually it's a little bit different here. And I'd like to point out a little bit how the Buddha points to this, to this importance of actually just tuning into the experience as best you can, right? As best you can. I am not saying that thoughts are not important. I'm not saying that thoughts don't have a value. And I'm not saying that you should never have thoughts when you're meditating. I'll, I'll get to kind of like the role thoughts have. But before I get there, I want to talk about the value of just the direct experience. So in one of these suttas, the Buddha, he categorized some of the others, not he categorized all spiritual leaders in his time. Somebody had a question about uh, spiritual leaders, and he said, well, there's different types. And he said, well, there are some that are relying on their sacred texts, the oral transmitters at that time, right? So that were um, the Brahmins, who had the dominant religion at the time of the Buddha. They memorized all those texts, and there was, that was the role of the priest to do a lot of this memorization. So there were those who had just memorized, who knew the text. And there were those that had just a lot of faith that they believed in. Maybe they don't know the text, but they have this feeling of just faith, maybe a little bit of devotion. It might be uh, the words of a particular teacher. It might be a god. But there was a, just a belief of faith. There was a third type that were using reasoning and logic and maybe would be more ph- like a philosophy or maybe even a lot of us. Certainly me, too. I do a lot of, you know, well, wait, if this means that and that should mean that. and So that's a one, so one, two, that's a third. And then the fourth are those who rely on their experience. So teachers that are relying on these four different ways that the Buddha talked about less than. And then he put himself in one of these categories. And he says, there are some mendicants, you know, some mendicants, practitioners, or teachers, I would say. There are some mendicants who, having directly known the Dharma for themselves, having reached perfection and consummation of direct knowledge here and now, teach the fundamentals of this spiritual life. I am one of those mendicants. So he's highlighting that his teachings come from his experience. And not only does he highlight like the importance maybe of having direct experience because that's how he had it, but he goes on others to criticize other people who seem to have like this blind faith in another sutta, there's a, a group of a whole um, bunch of um, Brahmins come to meet the Buddha. It's this long sutta that kind of like sits, well, why they even came to meet him. But they come to meet him, and they're having a discussion. And there's this young Brahmin uh, who keeps on interrupting, interrupting the conversation. 
And the Buddha says, you know, these are, you're interrupting me, but you're also interrupting your senior uh, elders in your community. So you're being rude. And the senior elders say, don't say that to him. He's actually quite smart and uh, competent, even though he's very young. So then the Buddha turns to him and says something along the lines, well, do you have a question? And uh, this young Brahmin says, well, we know the truth because we believe in our scriptures and that have been passed down for generations and they are true and everything else is not true. And the Buddha asked him, well, has anybody actually seen what these are in these scriptures? Does anybody actually directly know what are in these scriptures? And this Brahman, this young Brahmin says, no. And the Buddha says, okay, that's fine. Well, do you know anybody that knows somebody that knows these teachings have this direct experience? No. The Brahmin replies. And then the Buddha said, well, isn't this kind of like blind people leading other blind people? People who haven't seen for themselves, telling other people what it's practice is about, what the spiritual life is about. Kind of some harsh words. But again, the Buddha is pointing to that the, our, the importance of seeing and knowing for ourselves. And he doesn't put forth some physical, metaphysical views, right? He's not saying that... Um, let me back up and I'll say that he's not, uh, he has this idea that people who have views and are just putting it forth as, okay, this is the truth. He says, well, there's a, a different ways in which people do this. They have the, these ideas about what happens after death. What is the nature of the universe? Is it infinite or not and says it's impossible to know these answers so these can just be views and then I like this expression he says that um, these views are for those who do not know and see so if you don't have direct experience in other things then you tend to be more in your head and be thinking about these things that really don't have answers and he's highlighting that this does not bring you to greater freedom This doesn't bring you to greater ease trying to figure out the answer to some of these things. So he says, these speculative views are a thicket of views, a wilderness of views, a contortion of views, a vacillation of views, a fetter of views. I don't know exactly what all these words mean, like a contortion of views, but it sounds like, wow, this is complicated, right? And it's not that's somehow spacious and easeful. And he continues by saying, well, these views are beset by suffering, vexation, despair, and by fever. Right? If you're trying to find the answers for some of these things that don't have answers, it's troubling to want something that we can't have, but also to feel like your happiness depends on this or your future happiness depends on this. And the Buddha goes on and he says, so having these views does not lead to disenchantment, dispassion, cessation, 
peace, direct knowledge, and awakening. So it's not the way towards awakening. So what is? What is part of the way? I appreciate very much that the it occurs to me as I'm talking here, I'm giving like all these ideas and I'm talking and I'm saying, well, don't be concerned about ideas, but here's a lot of them. <laughs> so there's a little irony here in a, kind of what I'm saying here. But I'm trying to like pull from the suttas some like quotes of what the Buddha is saying to support this idea of it's really about our direct experience as opposed to our thoughts, our views, our beliefs. And making that distinction is such an integral part of practice. So here's something else that the Buddha says. He describes the Dharma, that is, the teachings, or we might even understand the Dharma as the way things are. He's saying that the Dharma is directly visible, immediate, inviting one to come and see, applicable, and to be personally experienced. The Dharma is directly visible. So something that you can come in contact with, you can see. It's not some complicated philosophical idea. And I would even say you don't have to go on super long retreats and meditate forever. directly visible and immediate, not something that you have to like figure out later. And the Dharma can just be knowing what the experience is right now, as opposed to our ideas about it. So being able to like tease apart their experience from our reaction to it. It's also saying that the Dharma is inviting one to come and see. He's not inviting one to go and see. <laughs> go, uh, you know, another time, another place, you'll figure it out. It's actually pointing to, no, 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 whatever the experience is right now, whatever it is, pleasant, unpleasant, neutral, we can get in contact with it and see the Dharma, the way things are. And we can start to see, like, oh, these things are changing. Of course they are. Our experiences are really changing. And the quieter the mind gets, the more that we can see the change. Or we can see, oh yeah, actually this experience is not a source of lasting happiness. might be a little bit pleasurable, but not a source of lasting happiness. So seeing the Dharma, just in our experience, whatever the experience is, And then the last thing here is saying it's to be personally experienced by the wise. So not to philosophize about, but to experience. And I appreciate that he's saying by the wise. So here wisdom is getting defined by somebody who's having direct experience, who's tuning into what's ever happening right now. So I just said that you don't have to 
sit long retreats necessarily. Sitting, meditating regularly is certainly helpful. Sometimes I talk about long retreats. I like to do long retreat practice, but I don't want to give the impression that that's the only way to go forward or something like that. Because that's a trap to think like, well, okay, as soon as I go on a long retreat, which will have to wait until my life situation changes, then I'll be able to have some real insights. You don't have to wait. But the Buddha... He's saying, you know, he's inviting us to come and see Ehipasako, come and see. But he's also saying, well, it's not the easiest to see. If it were, then not everybody would see the Dharma and become enlightened and we'd all live happily ever after or something like that. He's saying, the Dharma is profound, hard to see, peaceful and sublime, unattainable by mere reasoning, Subtle and to be experienced by the wise. So this is part of why we meditate, is because it's subtle, hard to see. Because we're so often thinking that what we want is like out there, it's like outside of our experience, either with our thinking or just getting uh, focused on the next moment, what's going to happen next, or lost in fantasy or memory or something like this. But I like this, that he's saying that it's peaceful and sublime. So tuning in and being with what's actually happening without adding these big commentaries on top, just allowing whatever the experience is to be there. That act of allowing creates some of this peacefulness and the sublime is the, the not wanting things to be different. So part of the reason why the Buddha is pointing to direct experience is Because awakening, liberation, enlightenment, greater peace, greater freedom is associated with direct experience rather than just thoughts or views or beliefs or ideas. And one of the ways is having insight. I want to make a distinction between insights and thoughts and beliefs and views. So insights might be uh, something that happens with our mental capacity. But for me, that one way that I understand the insights differently is that we all know that people die. We all know that pets die. We, like You ask anybody, they will know this. But it's not until somebody you love dies that you really understand it, right? There's like a different understanding that comes from the experience. That's what it's kind of pointing towards insight, is this different type of knowing that goes beyond just maybe intellectual understanding. It's like knowing in your bones or your blood or something like this. 
And then I'll add one other thing about insight in the context in which we talk about it here. An insight is this knowing, this experiential knowing, that also reduces suffering. So there's this recognition of something that with that recognition, that really deep knowing, there's a a letting go of something and there's some greater ease and peace. It might not even be immediately clear what is let go of at that time, but this is part of what insight is. And the Buddha, he described before he was awakened how this had an impact on him. And he's, he's, uh, said that he attained liberation by understanding, kind of like having insight into the rising and passing away of experiences, seeing how experiences are going, coming and going and rising and passing away. But not only that, there's this little expression saying their gratification, their danger, they escape. So gratification is sometimes our experiences that our desires are fulfilled. And we feel like, phew, okay, I don't, I'm not desiring anymore. I don't have that sense of lack. I, it's, I feel certain ease here. It's true. We have pleasant experiences and our desires get fulfilled. Of course they do. So to recognize that, that's kind of like the gratification. To recognize, of course they do. They create the conditions for pleasure and joy, love, all kinds of beautiful things. And <laughs> it's a little bit of the danger is that sooner or later this gratification is going to end. What is pleasant may just become neutral. Feeling eating your favorite ice cream at the fast at the beginning is great, and then it just becomes you know you're a little bit the habit like okay I better finish what's in the bowl it's not so great anymore. And then if you had to eat it even more, it starts to become uncomfortable, right? Unpleasant. So this danger sooner or later, this gratification part, the pleasure part starts to end. And then to the extent that we were attached to that pleasure, like, oh, okay, I finally got my desires fulfilled. Now I can be happy. I'll be happy as long as this stays. The tighter we're holding on, the more difficulties we're going to have when those things change, when they go away, of course. Sometimes we hold on and we are, um, our sense of self gets uh, involved about it or uh, I'm the one who has this and nobody else has it and I have this or something like this. But things change. They rise and they pass away. So then the escape from them is to step out of this attachment and craving. To allow the experiences to come and go and not be adding like these thoughts or ideas or views or beliefs that get put on top of them 
or labels that we're putting on top and we're no longer with our experience but being with the label, can we just step out of this habit of trying to get attached or holding on in some kind of way? Sometimes it's subtle, really subtle. There's two ways we can do this. One is with a sometimes with a meditation practice, as the mind quiets, then some of the letting go just naturally happens. If you get into some of these absorptive states, there's a lot of letting go and it's a, not a lot of uh, agitation from the experiences. The other way is awakening. Is <laughs> the escape, right? There's awakening, there isn't craving. There isn't agitation. So, meditation, as I've been saying, supports this, a way to get in touch with our direct experience and to also see how some of the thoughts we might have or the ideas that we have aren't the way forward because thoughts beget thoughts which beget thoughts which beget thoughts and on we go right into these thought streams we start to get really disconnected from what's actually happening I'm not saying that we don't need to plan I'm not saying that we don't need to solve problems I am saying that there's a way in which sometimes we're adding on to our direct experience, we're holding on this whole narrative that it means this about me or it means this about something else or the universe or something like this. That's extra. We don't need it. It gets in the way. So maybe I've been talking about the Upside of you know working with direct experience, and I just want to mention a little bit more specifically some of the downside of just relying on thoughts and philosophy and ideas and beliefs and notions that we have. So, first of all, again, I want to kind of acknowledge thoughts are important. I'm not saying we shouldn't have thoughts. In fact, I would say they're very powerful and can be beautiful, right? Humans have written love poems, have cured diseases, we've uh, eliminated pain in a lot of situations that otherwise would have been pain. Right? Tylenol exists now, right? That was the work of somebody's thoughts and planning. We've ex- explored outer space, ocean depths, I mean, all kinds of great stuff that has come from thoughts and planning. But many of the views, opinions, beliefs, stories, thoughts that we have are the basis of our suffering. I should be mindful all the time. Having a thought like that is can be a basis of suffering because chances are you're not mindful 100% of the time. Or... Yeah, my practice won't really take off and until I'm able to sit still for an hour. And I can't sit still for an hour, so I don't know. Maybe there's no hope for me or something like this. Oh, so many thoughts that we have. They just aren't helpful. In fact, I would say that they're part of our suffering. 
I would also say that holding views, having these ideas about what practice is or about this idea that we have to figure things out, part of the downside of them is that it can lead to some complacency in our meditation practice. If we're thinking that it's just about uh, solving problems or ruminating or figuring things out, then we will spend our time on the cushion figuring things out. But if we have this idea, no, actually direct experience is important, then we'll tune into what is the experience of breathing? What is the experience of sitting in this posture? What is the experience of hearing those sounds? And maybe I'll just say this one last thing too. Also this, um, if we have this idea that we just only want to have views, we're like really holding on to some of our ideas this might be an indicator of something bigger that's happening in our life. That is a certain amount of arrogance. I could maybe use that word that we think like, okay, I already know what I need to know or I don't need to really tune into what's happening. I'm smart enough. I can figure it out. Or maybe it's a certain amount of closed-mindedness. Like, I don't really want to learn anything new. I just want to be quiet and I'm hope that I feel some relaxation. I don't want to open up any new experiences or new ideas. Or Maybe clinging to views is a part of wishful thinking too. We might have this idea that sometimes it's like if we think something enough, then it will be so. If we convince ourselves, it'll be so. That doesn't work so well. So, this idea of thoughts, thinking, views, beliefs versus just tuning into, experiencing whatever there is to tune into and experience. And I recognize that for some people, their experience is really difficult and overwhelming. So there's ways in which we can work with that. That's like tune into your experience and then come back out, open your eyes, for example, so that we don't fall into overwhelm. But it's not, you won't be able to work with it by avoiding it and just thinking about it. If we could all think ourselves to greater life, we would have done it already. And maybe I'll end with that. And open it up to some questions. Does anybody have a comment or a question that they'd uh, like to say? Um, when you talk about like insight, um, could you elaborate a little bit on the difference between insight versus like wisdom, or if they're the same, or just if there's any difference between them? Yeah, thank you. That's a good question. 
I would say different teachers at different times would say different things. This teacher at different times would say different things. <laughs> so um, I would say I would say all insight is wisdom, but not all wisdom is insight. So some wisdom is just recognizing um, that oh yeah, I'm lost in thoughts. So there. That may not be like an insight, but that's just recognizing, oh yeah, I'm lost in thoughts, and I remember that when I'm usually doing this, it doesn't have a good outcome or something like this. But, I don't know, is, is that helpful? Yeah, yeah, that helps. Anybody else have a comment or a question? I was also thinking that um, part of why I, I mentioned earlier the kind of the irony, I'm giving all these ideas to say, oh, it's not all about ideas. And I was thinking that also, for me, in my life, I so much thought I could think my way through. In my early 20s, well, I have a question here. I just was having a hard time. And I just would go to the library and like, okay, there's got to be a book here that has the answer. And I have a lot of books, but uh, turns out not to be the answers that I thought they would be. Yeah, uh, I really am um, excited about this idea of teachers being, or you know, uh, wise people being uh, a result of direct experience. So, and I know you're saying it's not necessarily experience out there, but aren't we then just cultivating experience? And how does that relate to being still? I don't know. It's a hard question to ask, but just that makes me want to just go and experience everything. And I think that's a little bit too wild and crazy (laughs) Um, so why do you think it's wild and crazy uh, because I don't I think there's there's a seeking and a distraction Mm -hmm. that happens with that Mm -hmm. Um, and perhaps not enough reflection and insight Mm-hmm. Um, and the balance between those two things, mm-hmm. but uh, yeah. I so, searching after stimulation, right? It just gets uh, exhausting and mm-hmm. doesn't necessarily lead to some greater understanding. So, when I was um, thinking about experience, I was using words like uh, warm or cold or tingly or stabbing or spacious or closed or tight, or um, relaxed, uh, I don't know, those kinds of words. So I, I'm when I'm pointing towards, or this idea of direct experience, I'm really talking about like, really kind of like basic experiences. And we can turn whatever it is, whether it's after going out and experiencing everything, we can just be with them, and then we would just notice, oh, this uh, energetic or or bubbly, or <laughs> I don't know what it would be to 
follow that. So it, I wouldn't say it has to be only certain types of experiences, but if we're really with our experience, we will notice the downside of certain experiences. Like, oh, this always comes with some tightness and tiredness when I am in having these certain types of experiences or something like that. Mm-hmm. Is this helpful? Yeah, I think I think really it sounds like getting really in tune with kind of that somatic experience yes. of something. Yeah. Yes. Not, Thank you. Not uh, the thrill. Right. Feeling. Right. Thank you. That's right, because we do use this word experiences, like travel brochures or right. filled with yeah. this word or something like that. Or, you know, experienced, like <laughs> Jimi Hendrix. You know, like, what does that mean? So, That's right. Yeah. That's right. Thank you. Thank you. Diane, I think I see a parallel between what you said tonight about distinguishing between reasoning things out and understanding the benefits of direct experience and something that both you and Gil taught recently, namely, that when you look at the Four Noble Truths, you see the parallel? Mm-hmm. Um, when you look at the Four Noble Truths, instead of thinking about the uh, second noble truth as suffering is caused by craving, instead, just experience. Just, just at a fine-grained level, be aware of, notice, craving, and notice suffering. And when you have a lot of awareness of your moment-by-moment experience and how things change, you know, the, the insight really sinks in better. Something like that. Uh, so maybe you want to say it, repeat, you know, restate it a little bit better. <laughs> No, I think you said it very nicely. Right? One way that we can understand the Four Noble Truths is to recognize, oh, there's suffering, this word suffering, we could say stress or dissatisfaction. One way we can understand the Four Noble Truths is saying there's the arising and the cessation. So just to see the experience, oh, it's arising and it's going away, and there's a path that leads to the cessation, to the ending of the suffering. And that's in contrast to thinking about Oh, they're suffering. What's causing it? Oh, it's caused by this, but then what's caused by that? And that's more of a, might be a cognitive activity as opposed to just experiencing the rising and passing away. And, and Bill, I did get the idea for this Dharma talk based on uh, <laughs> the class that you were in on Thursday. <laughs> yep, so you get, I don't know, that was nice that you uh, caught the connection there. Yeah. I, I want to add, that the reasoning part has been tremendously helpful to me. Uh, oh, yeah. craving causes. Uh, 
suffering. And then I, when I can see oh, how I'm leaning into, shall we say, a, a um, social situation, wanting, wanting it to tr- turn out well, well, that leaning causes suffering, maybe both directions. So pull back. So that re- the reasoning part has been helpful, but, but, but I see what you're saying. Yeah, yeah. Reasoning, right? We need it. It's important and it's helpful and it's an integral part of our lives and I would say practice too. But sometimes we get disconnected from the experience or think that, okay, I just have to learn more. I just have to understand better and then I'll become awakened or somehow something like this. But yeah. Thank you. Thank you, you, Bill. Okay, so we're at the top of the hour. And I'd like to wish you all a wonderful rest of the evening. And if you'd like, you're welcome to come up here and talk to me. But otherwise, be safe. And thank you.